You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Well, good morning. Like Bevan said, my name's Ethan. I'm the family pastor here. And we're in this series called The Divine Conspiracy. So in the series, if you've been with us, we're walking through uh, the, ser- the passage called the Sermon on the Mount, often known as the Sermon on the Mount. This is some teaching from Jesus. And we're just walking through the whole thing over the course of the summer. So we're going to continue that today. The series is called The Divine Conspiracy because what we're doing as we're looking at Jesus' words is we're looking at God's kind of under-the-radar plan to make the kingdom of heaven accessible to all people. That's the theme that we're pursuing throughout this. And so what's going on here is that contrary to expectations is that when Jesus came, he didn't come and set up some kind of rival empire to Rome. That's kind of what people expected. He's going to come. He's going to set up this rival empire to the great Roman empire. Instead, what he did is he invited some local fishermen, right? Obviously. Got some local fishermen and a handful of others, ragtag group, and he invited them to be co-conspirators with him to change the world. And that's been going on. He hasn't changed the game plan. That's been going on for the past 2,000 years. And so now for us, he's inviting us to be a part of that ragtag group. He's inviting us to be a part of this conspiracy and uh, make an impact on the world. But we don't want to let this grassroots nature of the divine conspiracy fool us into thinking that Jesus is anti-institution, okay? He's not. He's absolutely not anti-institution. Jesus, actually, he came to establish his kingdom on earth, and for this kingdom, there are two institutions that really serve as pillars of God's kingdom on earth. And both of those uh, institutions, they're mentioned in Ephesians 5. So let's look at Ephesians 5.21 real quick. It says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So right there, there's our first institution. It's the church. The church, it's us. Jesus didn't come just to save individuals here and there. He actually came and he died for, like it says right here, the church. He gave himself up for her. The second institution, it actually serves as a picture of the first institution, and that's marriage. Ephesians, it goes goes on to say, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For this reason, it says a few verses later, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So here we see that marriage was established by God, and it doesn't just happen to resemble the church. Marriage just doesn't, by coincidence, have to have or happen to have some kind of parallels and similarities with the church. No, God actually designed marriage from the beginning so that the imperfect love of a husband would illustrate for us the perfect love that Jesus has for the church. So those are two institutions. We've got the church and we have marriage. Those are pillars of God's kingdom on earth. Now, my wife and I, we are celebrating our 10-year anniversary actually next month. So a big milestone for us. We're excited about that. Um, Here's a photo from nine years and 11 months ago. This is us. I look at this picture, and I think two things. I think, one, we just look so happy. Don't we look happy? And then I think, two, we look like babies. Don't we just kind of look like happy babies? But we were. We were very happy. We were were so happy when this photo was taken. On this day, we were happy because this was one of the most significant days of our lives. And what's amazing to me is that not only was this day significant to us, it turns out this day was actually significant to God. God cares about this day. God circled this day 
on his calendar. This day has meaning not just for me and my wife, Andrea. This day has meaning for God. And the reason is that God actually wants to use my marriage, my marriage, as a critical part of his plan to advance the kingdom of God. Not only that, he wants to use my marriage to impact all of eternity. He has plans for that. This is a significant thing for God. And if you're married, that is same, that's the same for you as well. That's true for you as well. He wants to use the way that you treat your spouse. He wants that to stand out as different. He wants people to look at that and say, wow, that's different. And he wants that to point to Jesus. Bevan talked about this a couple weeks ago. He talked about being salt and light in the passage we had a few weeks ago. God wants your marriage to be salt and light to the people around you. He also wants the union between you and your spouse to accomplish more for Christ than the two of you could, could accomplish if you were not united, if you were separate. And then on, on top of that, central to his plan, central to God's plan is that godly marriages would result in godly kids, that godly kids would grow up to become godly men and godly women that those godly men and godly women would grow up to meet other godly men and godly women and make more godly men and more godly women. That's central to his plan. But with this much writing on my marriage, with this much writing on your marriage, it's bound to attract attention. These marriages, they're going to show up on the radar. And Jesus taught that Satan is real. He taught that he's real, and he taught that he is in absolute opposition to the kingdom of God. He hates the kingdom of God. And this means that Satan is very much interested in the destruction of your marriage. And that's really, that's really maybe a soft way of putting it. He hates marriage. He hates your marriage. He will do anything that he can to destroy it. And he has a lot of tools. He has a lot of strategies that he can use to try to destroy a marriage. But you don't have to be Napoleon to figure out that one of the top battlefield tactics for taking out a marriage is lust. That's kind of intuitive, isn't it? We know that. And so that's what Jesus turns his attention to in today's passage. He's talking about lust. And so since that's what Jesus is talking about, that's what we're talking about. So I'm going to read you this passage of scripture. It's about five or six verses long. I'll read it through, and then we'll start talking about it, okay? So Matthew 5, 27 through 32, it says, "'You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery.'" But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. He goes on. It has been said. Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Don't you just love it when you read a passage and you understand it immediately like this? No confusion, right? This is easy. Let's go home. We're done. <laughs> no, let's understand what we're talking about here. Let's understand it. Let's start by making some observations. All right, the first thing that stands out to me here is the phrase, you've heard that it was said. And if you've been with us for a little bit, that'll probably stand out to you too. This is kind of a theme that we've been tracking. It'll look familiar. Last week's passage started off with the exact same phrase. You've heard that it was said. Last week it was, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. This week we have, 
it, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And what both of these are, these are both actually quotes from the Old Testament. Specifically, these are quotes from the, the sixth and the seventh of the Ten Commandments. So we're talking about Jesus referencing the Ten Commandments here, which means that these words would have been very familiar to Jesus's audience. They would have known immediately what he was talking about. The problem is that though they were very familiar with these words, the religious leaders of the time, what they'd done is they'd kind of come to understand these words at their shallowest possible meaning. They'd come to understand these words at a very shallow level. They saw you shall not commit adultery. They really saw it as a one layer, a single layer issue. They saw it simply in the realm of the body. So if we think about this in layers, they saw it just in the realm of the body. To them, it was simple. The thought was, have I had sex with someone who is not my spouse? And if the answer to that is no, all right, check. Check on commandment number seven. Now, Jesus, he didn't disagree with this layer. He didn't disagree that that was important. But in the next sentence, what he does is he takes things a step farther, a step deeper. He says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, so Jesus is changing things. Jesus just introduced two new layers in one single sentence. The first layer is the mind, right? It says, he says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully. Now, where does lust occur? Lust occurs in our mind. And so what Jesus has done is he's just raised the bar by looping into the conversation our private thoughts, our private daydreams, fantasies, all of those things Jesus has, Jesus has just brought into the conversation and made it a little bit deeper. But he doesn't stop right there. It doesn't stop at that point. The next layer is the heart. That's what's really going on at the core. That's what Jesus is drilling in at. He's not just concerned with our thoughts. He's not just concerned with outward manifestations of lust. He's actually concerned with what's at the core. He's concerned with the heart. Like he says, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her. Where? In the heart. So according to Jesus, God is actually applying this seventh commandment at a heart level. And so with a standard this high, it's really fair of us to ask, who can actually meet this? Who can meet that standard? Can you meet that standard? I can't meet that standard. And that's, and that's, that's, that's true. None of us can meet that standard. And that's actually kind of the point here. It's kind of the point. The only one who can meet this standard of sinlessness is Jesus himself. But what Jesus did is Jesus went and Jesus died on a cross for our sins. He died to save us. He died to pay for our sins. He died to save our sinful hearts, our sinful minds, and our sinful bodies. And he doesn't want to just forgive us of our sins so that we can continue to wallow in them and continue to suffer from them. Just like Jesus died and then rose from the dead, in the same way, he wants us to have new life. He wants us to live a new life. He wants us to live a forgiven life. And what he wants in that forgiven life is that we would learn to have victory over sin, victory at each one of these layers, at the heart, at the mind, and at the body. So let's do this. Let's look at three lines of defense that we can set up against sin, one for each of these layers. The first line of defense is this. It's to guard your heart. Guard your heart. And this is the first line of defense because it's the source. It's the source of our thoughts and of our actions. Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, which means this is your top priority. Above all else, top priority, guard your heart. For everything that you do flows from it. All your actions, all of your thoughts, they flow from your heart. So how do you guard your heart? Well, 
The first thing is you pay attention. To guard your heart, you pay attention. Attentiveness is the most fundamental element of guarding something. If you want to guard something, you have to pay attention to it. In fact, in the U.S. military, to be asleep or to be drunk on guard duty, this is one of the most serious offenses that a soldier can commit. If you're on guard duty and you want to catch some extra Z's or you get a little tipsy, that's going to cause some problems for you because your job is to pay attention. So if you're asleep, you're not doing your job, your one job of paying attention. So to guard something, you have to pay attention. But then what are you actually looking for? If you're guarding something, what are you on the lookout for? Well, if we're going to boil it down to one word, it would be this. Or one word would be selfishness. That's what you're looking for in your heart. And it turns out that selfishness lives in all of our hearts. One of the things that means is that if we're looking for it, we're not going to have to wait long. It's not going to be a long wait before you actually spot that. Now, last, last night, I was, a, I was actually a groomsman in a wedding last night. So it was kind of cool thinking about marriage and, and, and how... What a, what a big deal that is to God, and then to be at this wedding with this great couple and, and actually see that on display yesterday. So I was a groomsman in a wedding. The bride and the groom, they're totally head over heels with each other, you know? And one of the things about being a groomsman is you're standing and you're facing the bride. You can see the bride's face, and you can just see how happy she is the whole time. So that's, that's an awesome thing. But I had to smile just looking at this couple, and I had this thought of, you know, these are great people, and they have no idea yet how selfish they are. Marriage teaches you something about selfishness. And I know that they know. Technically, they know. People have told them, yeah, marriage will expose your selfishness. And dating, they've, they've seen glimpses into their own selfishness and the selfish, selfishness of the other. But what marriage does is it guarantees you get, a lot more, you get a lot more than just glimpses of selfishness. I remember when I got married, I realized my selfishness just has no place to hide. It turns out it had been there all along. I just got really good at hiding it. All of a sudden, I can't hide that anymore. And so I realized, oh man, that's there. And that's the great irony of marriage. The great irony of marriage is that God calls two selfish people to love each other selflessly. He's calling two absolutely selfish people to love each other in a selfless way. What an irony that is. And that's not a normal way of thinking about marriage today. Not at all. Normal thinking about marriage today is that marriage is really like everything else in a free market economy. It makes sense as long as it's a good deal for both parties. If both parties are getting, one of, out of, getting out of it what they want, they're both satisfied, then things are going well. If one party becomes dissatisfied or they feel like they're not getting out of it what they're putting into it, then, well, what happens? The, the partnership, it begins to crumble, kind of begins to fall apart. And so that's our view of marriage today. And it turns out that's actually how the view of marriage was in Jesus' day as well. At least for the men, that's how it was. Let me, read for, let me read for you this passage that we already looked at and explain what I mean. So this is the section on divorce where Jesus said, It has been said to you, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, at the time when Jesus said this, there was a common Jew Jewish teaching that was basically, it's okay in God's eyes for a man to set his wife aside to divorce her for a variety of reasons. And those reasons, they were listed out specifically. They included things like cooking a bad meal. You burn it, God's fine with the divorce. 
Or it could be the husband just simply losing interest in her. Well, that doesn't sound fair. And it's not. What this amounted to is God's cool with divorce for really any arbitrary reason. Basically, God's fine. You want a divorce? God's cool with that. Now, Jesus' response here, what it actually is, if we think about it, this is an unprecedented, state, unprecedented statement of protection for women against the selfishness of their husbands. No one was talking like this at the time. This is unprecedented in human history, what Jesus says. And it also, it shows us how far the culture had gotten away, how far it had moved away from God's original intent of selflessness to appear and show up in our marriages. But today, like I said, we're talking about lust. And so, so what does selfishness in marriage have to do with lust? Well, it turns out, actually, a lot. When we're selfish toward our spouse, that's the beginning point. That's when our heart begins to drift, begins to pull back. And a drifting heart, that really sets up the table for lust. In fact, what we can do is, if we look at today's passage, and we kind of combine it with last, last week's passage on anger, then we begin to see this kind of flow begin to emerge. And this is, this is valid for us to do, because remember, Jesus, he taught this in a single sitting. We're going through it in a summer. Jesus taught this in one single sitting. So if we look at these two passages together, we're actually look at the, looking at them as Jesus taught. So here's what we see if we put those two things together. We see wronged, anger, insult, bitterness, lust, divorce. Those are the topics kind of laid out in order. So what does this look like then? What does this practically look like? Well, it starts with wronged. I feel wronged. Maybe I feel wronged by something that my spouse did, probably because I wanted something that I wasn't getting out of my spouse. So I feel wronged, and I get angry. So I've moved from wrong to anger. Anger moves to insult when I express that anger. So now I'm expressing my anger. Maybe through harsh words, maybe through silence. All couples are different. <laughs> but I express my anger. Maybe she does too. And then this becomes a pattern. So we've moved from anger to insult. Insult moves to bitterness when I don't take steps to clear up that relationship. I'm just kind of letting that pattern continue. When that happens, things grow bitter and thing, things grow cold. Bitterness moves to lust. Bitterness opens up an emotional gap between me and my spouse. In that emotional gap, physical intimacy becomes rare, and when it does occur, it's less enjoyable. And so what happens is I begin to seek fulfillment somewhere else because of that emotional gap that's depriving the relationship of intimacy. So obviously, that's a great door for lust to enter. Lust moves to adultery. Having surrendered to lust, my heart is prepped and primed. Now the only thing that I'm lacking is opportunity. You see how this flow is continuing. And then the last one is adultery to divorce. The deal isn't sealed when adultery occurs, but let's be honest, very few marriages are able to pull back from the brink at that point. So divorce is a very common outcome. So just looking at this flow and thinking about it, wouldn't you rather humble yourself, humble yourself and defend your marriage over here on the left side, on the anger insult side, where selfishness is kind of driving things. Wouldn't you rather defend your marriage over here than defend it over on the right side, over here in the lust, adultery side? I think we all want to do that. And so to do that, we need to pay attention, but it's not enough just to pay attention. We also need to take action, take action. And when I was a kid, 
We had a bloodhound who was a terrible guard dog. His name was Rip Van Wrinkle. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he once let an escaped convict from kind of a modern-day equivalent of a chain gang hop the fence into our backyard. No joke, guys. Convict hops the fence into our backyard, goes and hides in Rip's, we call him Rip, goes and hides in Rip's doghouse. He does nothing. He sees the whole thing. No bark, nothing. He doesn't let us know. My mom looks out the window and sees Rip over in the corner, kind of shaking and quaking, and she sees the boots hanging out of his doghouse. He was a terrible guard dog. Uh, when it comes to guarding our hearts, it's not enough just to pay attention. We don't want to be like Rip, and yeah, we're paying attention, we're seeing the whole thing unfold, but we don't take action, we don't do anything about it. We want to be people of action who do something about it. So what actions can you take to battle self selfishness and to proactively love your spouse? I've got four quick things for you. I'm not going to elaborate on them very much because I think if you're motivated in this area, you're going to take this and run with it. But let me run through four quick ways that you can take action to proactively love your spouse. One is to actually read the Bible. What? Why does that make the list? Well, actually, love for others, including love for your spouse, that's going to grow out of your love for God. So if you cultivate your walk with God by reading his word every day, maybe not every day, maybe five days a week, you skip a day, that's okay. Read God's word every day as much as possible. Ask him to reveal something about himself as you do. Do that and watch and see if your heart for God, as your heart for God grows, if your heart for your spouse doesn't grow at the same time. So read the Bible. Next is to ask and to give forgiveness. Remember, we're talking about two selfish people coming together in marriage. So forgiveness is always going to be an essential part of that relationship. Without it, things are just going to grind to a halt. And I think I, Andrea and I, we go through times where this is just a daily thing. I asked my wife for forgiveness for something this morning. This isn't an anomaly in our marriage. This is something that is constantly going on um, and constantly needs to be going on because we're constantly doing selfish things. So we're constantly asking for forgiveness. You want to give forgiveness generously in your marriage. Next thing is to serve. Ask, what are some practical ways that I can serve my spouse? And then do it. Don't do it begrudgingly. Don't do it because you want to get something in return for it. Just do it so you can set aside your selfishness and you can demonstrate love for your spouse. And the next is to, uh, to talk and or listen. We'll call it that. Talk and or listen. So are you the spouse where conversation is kind of like pulling teeth? Where it's tough to open up? If that's the case, you might need to just open up and talk to your spouse. Talk about what's going on in your mind in your heart. That's me. I, I tend in that direction. Are you the spouse with the gift of gab? Well, if that's the case, you might need to focus on listening. You might need to kind of pipe down a little bit, ask some questions, sit back, and just listen. So talk and or listen. The first line of defense here is to guard your heart, and we do that by paying attention. We also do it by taking action. The second line of defense is to guard your mind. We're going another layer out. Like Jesus said, anyone who looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so we want to ask, how do we guard against lustful thoughts? Well, let's start by defining lust so we can be on the same page, so we can know what we're talking about with that. In, uh, in 1964, Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart, he famously defined pornography 
by saying, I know it when I see it. I think that's a pretty good definition. And so if we were to take lust and apply that, we could probably say, I know it when I think it. That would be a good start. We'd probably get a good start. It would be a helpful start for us and true in understanding lust. But I think we should take it a step further. So here's our definition of lust. It's lust is indulging in fantasy enjoyment of someone you are not married to. Is that fair? Is that a fair definition of lust? Lust is indulging in fantasy enjoyment of someone you're not married to. It could be for one second. It could be in the amount of time it takes for a double take. It could be for many seconds. It could be for many consecutive seconds. It could be over a specific person. It could also be over a product of your own imagination. It could be a physical fantasy. That's normally what we associate with lust is physical fantasy, but it could also be an emotional fantasy. It could be, man, how great would it be to be with someone who would actually appreciate me, who would actually care about me for who I am? That would be an emotional fantasy. Ultimately, what lust is, is it's a violation of the Ten Commandments. And not just the commandment, thou shalt, you shall not, thou shalt, Uh, (laughs) you shall not commit adultery, but also the Tenth Commandment. The Tenth Commandment is, you shall not covet. You shall not covet. Lust always involves wanting something that you don't have. It involves coveting. It involves wanting something you don't have, and it involves discontent with what God has actually given you. This is one of the things that makes it so destructive, is that we're actually unhappy with what God has given us, and we're wanting something that he has not given us. It could be discontent with your spouse, or it could be discontent even with your status of singleness. But discontent is always involved. So that's what lust is. How do you guard your mind? How do you guard your mind against that? Well, guarding your mind against lust requires building margin. Building margin. Margin is the difference between standing with your toes at the edge of the cliff and taking a few feet back, taking a step a few feet back. So if I'm standing right here with my toes right at the edge of the stage, no margin. We're all wondering if I'm going to fall. I am too. Take a step back, we're all more comfortable. I've got this margin right here. That's margin. Now, my wife and I, when we, uh, we always take our kids to the beach, like, like all of you guys do, I'm sure. And one thing that we always take very seriously when we go to the beach is crossing that bike path. We take it very seriously. So we, always, we, treat, we try to treat it like actual traffic. So we do all the stuff we do in actual traffic. We look both ways, everybody hold a hand, okay, cross at the same time and we go. And now that there's 11-year-olds doing 35 on e-bikes, I feel really justified in that. <laughs> I used to feel a little self-conscious about it. Now, no, that, that totally makes sense. But what happened is when the kids were little, we'd cross over that path, and we'd hit that little strip of sand, you know, the one between the path and that wall right there? We'd hit that, and the kids, they'd think we'd arrived at our destination, They'd be ready to set up shop. Let's go. Let's play in the sand. This is what we came for. And so my wife and I, we'd actually have to drag them from over there to the actual beach, like the one that people move here to live by. We'd drag them from that little strip of sand over there. And to us, it was obvious. We would think, we didn't bring you here so you could play in these cigarette butts four feet away from the bike path equivalent of PCH. That's not why we came to the beach. We wanted them to have 100 yards of margin between where they were playing and the 11-year-old on the e-bike, okay? We want them to have all of that margin. Margin is very important. 
But margin's not actually the point. The point is clean sand, beautiful beach, room to run around and just be a kid. That's why we brought them there. What margin does, margin is simply the buffer that allows that to happen. And so this is the same approach we need to apply to our thought life. The goal isn't to get just as, as close to the edge as we can. The goal isn't to get as close to lustful thoughts as possible without actually lusting. It's not, you know, look a little, daydream a little, hope no harm comes of it. No, instead, we want to give lustful thoughts a wide berth. We don't want to dabble in them or go near them. And when they pop into our heads uninvited, which they absolutely will, we want to kick them out, kick them out fast. We don't want to tolerate their presence there. We want to have a lot of margin. So again, margin, it's important, but it isn't the point. So what's the point? Well, the point is to get out of the dirty sandbox and enjoy a day at the beach. That's the point. If you're married, lust is going to be a major barrier to enjoying intimacy with your spouse. God has given you the gift of sex, and he wants you to enjoy the real deal. If you're unmarried, God has all kinds of gifts for you, all kinds of good gifts for you, and those may or may not include a future spouse. But the way that you handle lust, that's going to have a direct impact on your ability to, one, receive those gifts, and two, to enjoy those gifts. So, so whether we're married, whether we're single, to experience the best that God has for you, you want to keep far, far from lust. You want to steer clear of fantasy land to experience the best that God has for you. So we guard our hearts, we guard our minds, we guard our bodies. Guarding your body, this involves placing guardrails. Last year, um, I was invited to speak at a conference for college students. It was up in the mountains, up toward Big Bear, and so I went to go do that, and I took my family along. This was in the winter, and we were, uh, we were, we were about to drive up there, and right before we started driving up, this winter storm hit the mountain and just started piling on. So I thought, you know what? I think we can make it. We're going to go for it. Let's give it a shot. So we started driving, and um, guys, God's given us a great minivan. We're very grateful for it. It was not made for this. <laughs> not at all. Um, what we found ourselves in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic, going steep up the hill, winding. You guys have been there. You know what it's like in the snow just pouring down. And some of you guys, you would have been fine. You would have had no problem. I even heard later that some of you were up there on that same day with your you know, snow tires and four-wheel drive, which is great. I couldn't handle it. My van could not handle it at all. I was just doing everything, even with chains, I was doing everything I could to keep traction. And what I was trying to do, as I was looking really for a spot to turn around at mile after mile, I was, I was trying to keep out of the ditch on one side, and I was trying to keep out of oncoming traffic over here on the other side. And it was just the car, if you'd been in there, my wife and I were just dead silent, <laughs> just driving up. I've got, I'm white-knuckling it on the steering wheel, my wife is like subtly bracing herself while still wanting to portray confidence in me. Um, <clears throat> and the kids are just losing it in the back. It was terrible. Like one of the kids realized that, you know, we're not going to be able to, we're going to have to turn around. We're not going to be able to play in the snow. And so that kid is just crying in the back. Another kid is scared, which is probably the most logical response. That kid's crying. And then some other kids, they just don't want to be left out. So they're just crying to... <laughs> get in on the party. 
finally, I find a place where we can turn around, we turn around, we drive back down the hill, and we go straight to Cracker Barrel. <laughs> the moral of the story is if you ever want to turn a bad day into a happy memory, just go to Cracker Barrel. <laughs> Ended up being a great day. But ever since that day, I've had this new appreciation for guardrails. I look at them differently now because on that day, I thought multiple times, I would look at the guardrail and I'd think, that guardrail might actually be the thing, the only thing between me and driving my family off of a cliff. And that's the thing about guardrails. They are the last line of defense. They are never plan A. By the time you get to a guardrail, things have already gone horribly wrong. So plan A would have been for me to never put myself and my family in that situation in the first place. That would have been plan A. But having blown through plan A, man, I was really glad that there were guardrails there. I was so glad that they were there to give me as good a chance as possible of getting my family down the mountain in one piece to get some biscuits and gravy at Cracker Barrel. And that's the guardrail concept. This is what Jesus is commanding. This is what he's talking about in probably the most shocking part of the passage that we read today, where he said, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So here, is Jesus advocating for self-mutilation? No, that's absolutely not what he's doing. He's speaking in hyperbole. And while hyperbole, by definition, it's not something that you take literally, it is absolutely something that we're to take seriously, dead seriously. He's saying that lust is such a big deal that you should take whatever steps are necessary to block your future self from sexual sin. That's what he's saying. Even if those steps come off it's pretty extreme. Several years ago, I had two similar conversations with two young men. Both of these young men were, were single guys, and both of them were struggling with lust at the time. And part of the problem for both of them is that they kept their phone charging right there by their bed at night. So you can see how that would be a problem, obviously. Um, and so I made a simple suggestion to both. I said, hey, why don't you consider charging your phone in the living room? Both of them had roommates. Charge in the living room and tell your roommates why you're doing it. Ask them to hold you accountable. So I made that suggestion, and both of them said that they could not do that because they used their phones as alarm clocks to wake up in the morning. So can you guess what my next piece of advice was for both of those guys? <laughs> Buy a dang alarm clock. <laughs> so I gave them both that advice, and one guy went out that day, and he bought an alarm clock. He plugged it in, and he started charging his phone in the living room. Great. The other guy, he pushed back. To him, he just, he just had all kinds of barriers. Why, you know, there's no way, I, what if my mom calls me, blah, 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 blah. All kinds of reasons why it just wouldn't make sense for him to not have his phone right there by his bed at night. And so I want to ask you, of these two young men, which one do you think was taking Jesus seriously? If a $15 alarm clock is too extreme of a measure, it's a pretty good indication that you're not taking the sin of lust as seriously as Jesus does. And so, what about you? What's your $15 alarm clock? What's that guardrail that you need to place in your life to take Jesus seriously? 
Now, actual guardrails, they're always placed at high-risk spots on the road. If you drive up to Big Bear, there's not guardrails flanking you the whole way. No, they're at the spots where there's a known high-risk, dangerous area. So the same thing with our life. We want to look at our life and ask, where do we need to place those guardrails? Where are the high-risk areas? Where are the dangerous areas? And then we need to identify them and take steps to plan against them in advance. You can't take steps to build guardrails in the middle of temptation. It doesn't work like that. By the time you need them, it's too late. So they require premeditated thought. They need to be planned out in advance. Recently, I've run across a few great examples of guardrails. I want to share a couple of them with you just to help you think of what might be guardrails to set up in your own life. Uh, One is actually from my friend who got married yesterday, and I asked him if I could share this. Uh, Before they got married, they had a five-week period where my friend had moved into the house that they're now going to live in for five weeks before... um, so yeah, they're, they're going to get married. He moved into the house five weeks ahead of time. And what they did is they decided that during that five-week time that they weren't going to be alone in that house together. What they did is they recognized that there was going to be a lot of temptation, and probably the t- level of temptation would be higher than what they could actually handle. And so they made a very inconvenient but a very effective and simple guardrail. They stuck to it for five weeks. They got married yesterday, so that's done. That's history. Uh, I know of several other people who travel for work, and they know that alone in a hotel room is a danger zone. That's a spot where you need a guardrail. And so what they do is they make a point before they travel to let some trusted friends know what their schedule is, what they're going to be doing, and they ask for prayer, and they ask those friends to call them and to check in on them and make sure they're doing okay. That's a great guardrail. I have other friends who um, use the accountability app on their phone, Covenant Eyes, Uh, This is an app that uh, used to be really clunky and bogged down your phone. Now it's pretty smooth. Uh, It doesn't mess up your phone too much, doesn't really cause any problems. What it does is it takes screenshots from your phone and it texts them to a trusted friend just to make sure that you're not doing anything that you have no business doing. So some of those things, maybe they sound extreme. To me, they actually sound like common sense. They definitely sound like taking Jesus seriously. As we've said, though, as we've said, guardrails are not enough, and guardrails should not be plan A. Uh, The truth is that if I want to drive my car off a cliff, I'm more than capable of just plowing through a guardrail, right? And similarly, any one of us in this room, we're all intelligent enough to, to lie, to sneak, and to work around guardrails if we really want to. But for a heart that really desires to obey God and really understands its own weakness, And a guardrail can be a really helpful thing. So I realize throughout this whole thing, as we're talking about these different levels of where we want to place guards, you might be thinking, Ethan, this this sounds great. I'm, I'm all on board, but I honestly don't think I have the willpower to guard my heart, guard my mind, and guard my body. If you're thinking that, then I would say, I think that's good. I think you have an accurate assessment of yourself. And I want to share with you one of the most encouraging verses to me, and we'll, we'll land on this, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13. This is what it says. It says, so if you think that you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. In other words, if you're thinking, I got this, be careful. You don't got this. It says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. 
what you're experiencing. This is normal stuff. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide you a way out that you can endure it. So this encourages me because it reminds me that while I have a role to play, my ability to resist temptation rests on God's faithfulness, not on my own measly willpower. This means that at the end of the day, we guard our hearts, we guard our minds, we guard our bodies, not by doubling down and just trying really hard on willpower. Instead, we do that by calling out to God for help. And then we take the way out that he provides. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for not allowing us to, not giving us more temptation than we can handle. We thank you for that promise. That is important to us. And ultimately, we rest our hope on that. We rest our hope in Jesus and on you to provide us what we need um, when we're tempted, God. And we know also that you have a role for us to play. And so I pray that you would help us to prayerfully consider steps that you have so that we can protect marriage, so that we can guard, guard that, God. And I pray for the marriages in this room. God, I pray that they would be effective, that they would be a joy to the people um, who are married, and that they would be effective, God, for advancing your kingdom, not in some abstract way, but in, in really tangible ways right here in our city, God. Um, God, I pray that the strong marriages represented in this church would be a blessing, not just to the immediate generation to follow God, but they would have a trickle-down effect for many generations to come. And God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church Podcast.